This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture to psychology and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have with us best-selling author, founder of the Field of Happiness Studies, and a man who taught two of the most popular courses at Harvard in the university's history, Tal Ben-Shachar, and we're going to talk about how to bring happiness into our lives. And there's really no better time to do this than right now, as we've just started talking again about the book of Genesis. Because, you know, this week, Jews across the world are studying the book of Genesis right through the end of Genesis chapter 11. I'm talking the creation of the world, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, Tower of Babel, the works, basically everything right up until the story of Abraham. And this actually is maybe the most interesting moment in the Bible, maybe in the history of literature and philosophy as a whole, because it's the moment when you realize that the Bible is going to do something completely different from what we normally expect from philosophy or theology, because we've been conditioned to think that the more universal something is, the better. It's better to love everyone than to love one person. Objective truth is better than subjective perspectives from Plato, the United Nations. This is pretty like standard stuff. But the Bible actually does the opposite. It starts with a universal story about humanity as a whole. Adam stands for man in general. Eve stands for woman in general. Cain and Abel are the prototypical siblings. God sends the flood to punish all of humanity. The Tower of Babel is a universal human project that goes awry. But then we get to Abraham. And Abraham's not a universal stand-in for anyone. He's not an archetype. He's just like a guy. He and Sarah are just these two people from the backwaters of Mesopotamia with whom God establishes a personal relationship. So the Bible, unlike Plato, unlike the Buddha, unlike Kant, unlike the crafters of the European Union, tells its moral story as a journey not from the particular to the universal, but from the universal back to the particular. It narrows its focus rather than broadening it. But why? And I think the answer is that the Bible isn't seeking, as so many of those other thinkers were, to communicate objective moral truths. I mean, it does do that, to be sure, but that's like, you know, the least interesting thing the Bible does. Rather, much more importantly, the Bible records how God is willing to enter into a unique relationship with his creations. And a unique relationship can't be related through abstract universals. It can only be told through stories about real people with real struggles ups and downs, whose future can't simply be inferred from their past the way a logical conclusion would be inferred from its premises. And the Bible, in other words, tells us that to understand and to live the good life, you need to actually experience life. You need not only philosophy or mathematics, but literature, psychology, history, anthropology. You need a holistic approach, so much more. You need the holistic richness of real life. So what does that mean in 2021? How do we a generation that just suffered through a major, and in many respects is still suffering through a major pandemic, a generation more overloaded with information and emotional stimuli than ever before. How do we go about living lives of goodness and happiness? And so to provide a unique perspective on this, I brought on one of the most penetrating thinkers on the planet on the subject of happiness in the world, an internationally renowned teacher, best-selling author, the one, the only Tal Ben-Shakar. Tal, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Ari, for having me. But you know, after this introduction, I feel that this conversation is way above my pay grade. 
but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'm so excited for the next 20 or so minutes to completely prove that wrong. But <laughs> so here's where I want to start. One of the most famous narratives in the history, not only of theology, but like world literature is the story of Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And one of the thorniest problems in interpreting this story, you know, whether it's like for theologians of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, and that's not to mention philosophers and psychologists and beyond, is the question of what it was that humankind could actually know before they ate from the tree of knowledge in the story, before they knew good and evil. And one answer that always struck me was the answer of Maimonides, right? An extraordinary Jewish thinker, generally one of the most important figures in medieval philosophy, a major influence on Thomas Aquinas. Maimonides said that prior to eating from the tree of knowledge, there was no like intuitive philosophical sense of good and evil, but there was a sense of pleasant and unpleasant. So right there, you get a distinction, a key distinction between goodness and happiness. So in your work, how do you judge the difference between happiness and goodness or happiness and virtue? Are they intention or are they somewhere on a continuum? How do you think about that question? So there's, uh, you know, of course, a lot of uh, discussion around this question. And um, in fact, I, I wrote my uh, senior thesis in college working with Robert Nozick on the topic that honesty pays, that we pay a high psychological, emotional price for being dishonest or in general, immoral. So the connection is real, and the connection is addressed, obviously, in the Bible. It's addressed by uh, philosophers like uh, Aristotle, Plato, and then later by Adam Smith. And what we know today through psychological research is that when we act against our values or against some of the uh, universal values, even if we don't explicitly subscribe to them, we pay a high price. The high price comes in the form of lower self-confidence and self-esteem, so how we evaluate ourselves. It also uh, ultimately comes in the form of performing below our potential. So goodness, virtue, and happiness very much go hand in hand. And I'll go as far as to say it's not possible to live a full, fulfilling, happy life without also aspiring to living a virtuous, moral life. So... Can I then push that to the level, because that's so fascinating, can I push that to the level of the collective, right? So I think we often think of happiness as an individual project, and less often do we think of happiness as like a, a national project, let's say, or, a, or an international project. You know, let's back up a little bit. Can you say a little bit about what happiness studies is? Because you essentially have created a field out of nothing. Then I want to come back to individual versus the collective, but happiness studies it seems crazy to me that this didn't exist before you, but that really is the innovation that you bring in. And I think part of the story, as I understand it, of your creation of happiness studies as a field is wondering about how this could not have existed beforehand. So what's your journey to happiness studies? How do you think about it and where do you go from there? Yeah, so I'll just begin with your question. You know, you, you mentioned that I, I created the field of happiness from nothing. More specifically, I co-created the field of happiness studies from everything. So let me explain. So this was about almost six years ago. I was uh, on a transatlantic flight between London and, and New York. And um, somewhere over the Atlantic, a question came to me. And the question was, how is it that there is a field of study for psychology, which had been my field, or philosophy, or theology, history, medicine, education, you name it. And there's no field of study for happiness. 
yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers like, you know, Lao Tzu or, or Aristotle or Maimonides had to say about happiness? What about what theology has to say about happiness? Neuroscience, uh, literature. What about what economists have to say about the good life? And I decided, I resolved then to help create a field, an interdisciplinary field of study that looks at this question, a field of study that looks at Genesis, the story of creation, and looks at the Nicomachean ethics, and looks at Midot, and looks at the entire um, intellectual history of, of our world and integrates it into a field so that we can answer the question, how can I become happier? How can I help others do the same? So it actually reminds me of this fantastic article that Patrick Collison, who's the founder of Stripe, and Tyler Cowen, who's the creator, one of the creators of the Marginal Revolution blog and uh, and the head of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. They had an article, I think it was in Bloomberg, about a year or two ago, where they called for the creation of a field that they you know, proposed to be called progress studies, hmm. you know, where it's figuring out the roots of progress. How do we get more progress? How did it happen in the past? How do we get more of it in the future? I think they're thinking technology and social machinery and that sort of thing. But it struck me as of a piece, in a sense, with happiness studies from a conceptual standpoint, meaning what you just described as sort of the old way of doing education, really for like hundreds and hundreds of years, is that we pick subjects medicine, mathematics, astronomy, what have you. And it seems strange that we haven't picked goals or aspirations, right? Happiness, progress. And you could think about other ones. Is this like a sort of a revolution or that is happening now? Or is it something that still has a long way to go? Is this how you think about kind of the shift from subjects to aspirations? In a way, it's a revolution. It's looking for something new. But uh, in another way, it's going back to the old. I'll just give you an, an example based on what you said earlier. So you talked about how you know, the book of Genesis takes us from the universal to the, uh, to the particular, and that is unusual. What's unusual here is less the shift from universal to particular. It's more the focus on both mm. as important because you usually have either or. Are you a psychologist or a philosopher? If you're one or the other, you don't even know the language. You know, talk about the Tower of Babel. I mean, this is what, you know, an academic building would look like that has different languages or different departments in it. You don't communicate. And in the Torah, what you see is, first of all, the importance of a universal and the importance of the particular. When you think about a field like happiness studies, and, uh, you know, this is a point that I make over and over again to my students. When you think about happiness, you need to think about it at least on three levels. The first level is the universal. What's common to all of us? Well, what's common to all of us, for example, is that we all need a sense of meaning and purpose in life. What's common to all of us is that we all connect to stories, something that you spoke about. What's common to all of us is that we have the capacity for learning a language and communicating through a language. What's common to all of us is our need for physical exercise, for movement, for eating, and, and so on. So that's the universal. Then there is the cultural, because there are differences between uh, you know, people who were raised in New York City or people who were raised in Israel or people who were raised in China or Kenya. There are cultural differences and they are real. And we need to pay attention to those when we think about what will bring us happiness. And finally, there is the particular. Because, you know, Ari, you're different from your next door neighbor who was raised in the same place as you because you're a different people. Right. And what's meaningful for you is not necessarily meaningful for her and vice versa. 
So the need for meaning is universal. Then you also have to think about, you know, what's culturally appropriate and what's culturally acceptable and what's culturally promoted. And then there is also the individual differences. It's at these three levels that we need to look at. And what disciplines have to do today is expand their perspective, not just look at one or the other, to look at one and the other. And the same applies to different disciplines. You need to look at, again, philosophy, theology, history, neuroscience, and so on. That's amazing. And now a quick word from our sponsors. And we're back with Tal. So as you think about this kind of work over the course of the last year, you know, or a year and a half, I think most people, I don't want to generalize, but my perception is that most people experience the pandemic as a time of contraction, not of like holistic expansion, of like retreating. And, you know, it was also a time of just like deep unhappiness, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So what have you learned about happiness you know, over the course of the pandemic? And how has it shifted your thinking, if at all, about happiness studies moving forward? We can learn a lot from language. And, uh, you know, my mother tongue is, is Hebrew, so I, I very often turn to Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word mashbel is the word for crisis, a biblical word. It comes from the root shin bet shever, which is breaking. Now, the interesting thing about the word mashber and why I find it so fascinating is because it has a second meaning. And the second meaning of the word mashber is not known to most Israelis today. You know, maybe in, in biblical days, it was more of a common word. But today, most of people think mashber means crisis. That's it, period. The second meaning of the word mashber, the obscure meaning, is that mashber is also the chair upon which a woman sits when she gives birth. And I love those two meanings because they are connected from a mashber, from a crisis can come a breakdown, shever. Mm. From a crisis can come emerge new life. You know, the ultimate place from which a life emerges. And today, and this is where happiness studies is going today, more and more researchers are realizing the potential that exists in a crisis. Again, not to belittle, not to diminish the tragedy that so many people have experienced and are experiencing. At the same time, there's also an option for many of us to experience growth, you know, a renaissance of sorts as a result of a crisis, a new birth. If, and this is where happiness studies come in, if we know what conditions we need to put in place. There are various such conditions, you know, and, and I want to refer to one of these conditions where, uh, again, a biblical story helps, again, going a bit to the future, you know, beyond this is the podcast for it, let's rock and roll. <laughs> so this is a preview for uh, for a future uh, parasha. Think about Moses being chosen by God to lead the Hebrews out of uh, Egypt. When was he chosen? He was chosen when he ran after the poor lamb that ran away from the flock. And God said, you know, just as he served the flock, he will serve my people. And what's Moses's first reaction when he was chosen? The first reaction was. I can't do it. I'm not the right person to do it. I stutter. I have a speech impediment. And yet God chooses him. There's a very important message here. And the message here that to be a great leader, ears are more important than mouth. You need to listen more so than you need to speak. Now, there's research today during these very days that we're going through that the most important thing that we can do for employees in the organization for our children at home is first and foremost, listen, not rousing speeches, you know, not brilliant solutions, just be there and listen. 
And this is one of the things that we learn through difficult times. And this is one of the things that happiness studies as a field, drawing on theology, as I just did, drawing on the latest research going on in labs, in universities. This is the kind of things that we need to teach. I mean, it's so amazing. And actually, speaking of organizations, that reminds me of another topic that you're sort of renowned for. And that I think obviously plays a, a major component part in happiness and the study of happiness, and that's gratitude. And one of the things that I, I wonder about in the new dispensation that we're in now is what is going to be the impact or the interrelationship between increasing remoteness and lack of in-person on gratitude and personal interaction? The reason I think about it is because we first met actually on a, a nice coffee shop in the Upper West Side. It was a total blast. I think AJ Jacobs was also there and and uh, my uh, co-conspirator and cousin actually Stu Halpern was there, Dr. Stu Halpern. And it was such an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, being on Zoom as we are right now, it feels like a very different experience. And the truth is, just to put it in everyday life, <laughs> I've often observed that if you have two people walking down a street and one of them accidentally cuts in front of the other or steps in front of the other and maybe even elbows the other by accident, immediately one person will say to the other, I'm so sorry. And the other person will probably say, I'm sorry to the other person just instinctively. Like it's a normal thing when you're in person. If the two of them were in cars and one of them cut off the other, there's going to be at least one middle finger, if not two, <laughs> flying out the windows. And it's like the same two people, but because there's this sort of physical remove that's, you know, I don't think we traditionally think of that remove as being remote, but it is remote, right? Yeah. It's two people who aren't looking at each other in the face. What does remoteness do <laughs> to things like gratitude, wow. to things like personal interaction and relationship and friendship? What is it? And how should we think about this in the coming era? Ari, uh, you know, that's, a, that's such an important question, which again ties between the well-being and virtue, you know, happiness and goodness. Mm. And here is why. So to my mind, the most, not one of the, but the most disturbing study that I've come across in my 30 years as a psychologist is one by Sarah Conrath. Sarah Conrath studies empathy. And what she showed is that levels of empathy of 20-year-olds today, this is pre-COVID, is 40% lower than empathy levels of 20-year-olds from 20 years ago, so who are 40 today. So levels of empathy over 20 years have gone down by 40%, according to her measure. Mm. And again, there are many different measures. The point is not, is it did it go down 40% or 47% or 28%, but it went down significantly. Very disturbing. And why? Because um, empathy is not just the foundation of a life well-lived, of a happy life. It's also the foundation of a moral society. You know, devoid of empathy, we literally become psychopaths. Wow. We hurt each other without paying the price, the innate price of the moral sense that we were all endowed with. So empathy matters. Why is empathy levels gone down so significantly? The answer to a great extent lies in that we are shifting away from each other, moving from the real to the virtual. You know, think about it. Let, let me draw an analogy for that. So we learn a new language. Let's say I decide to learn Vietnamese. And uh, I go to, uh, to school and I take, you know, a Vietnamese class, you know, three, four, five times a week. And I memorize, you know, a vocabulary list every day. You know, we're all familiar. We, we've all studied a second language. You know, things we all do for fun. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you, and you'll pick up Vietnamese and you, you, you will learn how to speak it. You'll become better and better. But that is no comparison 
in terms of what you can accomplish if you actually now go to Vietnam and immerse yourself in the language, in the culture. You'll learn much quicker, much better. With empathy, it's the same thing. Empathy is the language of morality. Now, we can learn empathy by reading about it, by talking about it, by being told how important it is not to do unto others what we would not do unto ourselves, and so on. We can learn about it, and we'll become more empathic. But there is no substitute to immersing ourselves in the place where empathy is experienced firsthand. Where is that? Playing in the sandbox together. Where is that? Sitting around the same table. Where is it? Sitting in the same classroom, in the same office walking in the same street, because that's when we push each other inadvertently and we see the reaction of the other. That is when we see the tears in the other person's eye when I did something wrong. That is when we see them smile and we smile back because of our mirror neurons. Empathy develops best when we're in close proximity, close physical proximity to one another. When we lose that, we can still develop empathy, but much less so. More and more kids today are spending time on social media rather than interacting, playing in the same, you know, in, in the same soccer field or playing tag and hurting being hurt, help being helped by others. So we're not immersing ourselves in the in the environment, direct experience of empathy. It's amazing. Like the philosopher Levinas talks about the face-to-face encounter as the foundation of all ethics, the actual physical face-to-face encounter. That's exactly right. And we don't have enough of it today. Now, what's happening these days when we no longer meet, you know, in the coffee shop together, or at least not as much, we're paying a price for it. And, and therefore, I hope it's, it's temporary. And I hope that as a result of the price that we're paying, we'll be more appreciative and we'll seek that out much more when we go back to whatever the new normal is. Before we close up, I want to sort of shift to a different direction, which is I think when we, you know, when we think about happiness and the quest for spiritual, emotional well-being and virtue, I think sort of the one sort of popular version of that or some component of the conventional wisdom about that is that it's a purely spiritual quest. It's sort of like an anti-physical or metaphysical quest. And, you know, this has deep roots in kind of the Gnostic thinkers of the, you know, first, second and third and fourth centuries who just kind of despise the body as like a hindrance Mm. to, to spiritual wellness and fullness. And so my question to you is that, you know, you've talked a great deal about physicality and physical wellness as a component of happiness. So can you talk a little bit about spirit, body, mind, body? How does that figure into the good life? How does that figure into happiness? So um, uh, combining the two, bringing them together is key. My definition of happiness is, and again, it's a definition, it's not the definition, is that happiness comprises five elements. I call them the SPIRE elements. It's, it's an acronym. S is spiritual well-being. P is physical well-being. I is intellectual well-being. R stands for relational. And finally, E is emotional. These five elements, and they're of course interconnected, are essential if we are to lead a full and fulfilling life. So for example, without an element of spirituality, a sense of meaning and purpose in life, a sense of being present to the experience, it's very difficult to enjoy a happy life. At the same time, if we neglect the body, physical well-being, it's virtually impossible to experience happiness, to fulfill our potential for happiness. Same for intellectual. You know, we cannot be happy as, as grazing cows. 
we need to engage in thinking. We are rational animals, as Aristotle. We're the only meaning-making creatures on the planet. Exactly. And then, of course, relationships are important. No person is an island unto him or herself. And finally, emotions, of course, matter. How we deal with painful emotions, how we cultivate pleasurable emotions like gratitude, like joy, like love. These are also very important. So we need to think about whole person well-being rather than about just one or the other aspect of being human. And so finally, if people want to learn more about happiness studies, if they're interested in it, if they want to pursue it, where do they go? The Happiness Studies Academy, that's happinessstudies.academy. We provide uh, courses, certificate programs, soon uh, an academic degree in this field of happiness studies. And, And we ask two questions. The first question is, how can I become happier? Second question, how can I help others do the same? Unbelievable. Amen. Tal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ari. We live in an age where we possess more power than at any other time in the history of our species to transform the world. And true, that means we're more capable of destruction than ever before, certainly a sobering reality. But ultimately, I see this as an unparalleled blessing. We have the ability to do more good, experience more true happiness, and create genuine relationships with more and more of God's creations than ever. And so I actually see it not as a luxury, but a moral responsibility to start thinking about that idea, that aspiration, systematically and intentionally. So let's not let happiness and meaning be like a byproduct of our studies and pursuits. Let's make it the goal. And look, I know just now we're still in the middle of a pandemic, or at least we're feeling its after effects. It seems like a strange time to focus on happiness or joy or virtue or what have you, you know, rather than just survival. But as Tal said, a crisis can be a moment of new and marvelous birth. So let's do our part with God's help to make it so. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.